You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Falangong. This is episode 5 in our series, Esoteric Nazism Reexamined, Part 2, or Hitler's Magician. Today I'm recording from Berlin in a recording booth at La Scala Vaudeville Theatre. Many people know the power of Nazi rallies. There are countless reports of Hitler's magnetism, his dynamic speaking abilities, how Hitler could rile up crowds to tears or to anger. This is often paired with some comments about the dangers of demagoguery, or about the dangers of mob thinking, or the dangers of fascism. People love to talk about how Hitler could almost hypnotize the crowds. People talked about Hitler as if he had hypnotic powers. A curious thing about that, though, is if you ever try to suggest to people that Hitler was, in fact, actually hypnotizing people, you get a much different response. You'll typically get one of two things. You'll either get an argument from people who don't know anything about it, saying that that sounds like a conspiracy theory, which is fair, uh, if perhaps wrong. Or sometimes there's a fear that if Hitler was hypnotizing his audience, that would somehow let the Germans off the hook, morally speaking, for the crimes of the Nazi regime, as if Americans have ever been particularly worried about the guilt of the Germans and their crimes during the Nazi regime. What I suggest to you today, dear listener, is a simple proposition, that Hitler intentionally set out to learn from many sources how to manipulate crowds, up to and including hypnotic techniques, in order to gain power, which he then used on the German public, and that those techniques do in fact work. I'm aware this sounds a bit like a conspiracy theory, but it's entirely rational as we'll see, and it's borne out by the historical record. Not only that, along the way, we'll learn about one of the wildest, most interesting lives of the 20th century that of Erik Jan Hanussen. Let's get into it. The author and popular historian Barry Pitt said, No one in history has understood the basic principles of mass persuasion better than Hitler, and no organization has expended more labor and material in perfecting and using its techniques than the Nazi party during its turbulent and vicious life. Every art, Every subterfuge and contrivance was employed to hammer into the spectators and participants the message that Nazism was the only religion and Hitler its god. The prominent Nazi diplomat Ernst von Weizsäcker said of Hitler's powers, Nazi devotion took many forms. Some tried to touch Hitler as though though he were endowed with thaumaturgic powers. Others built little domestic shrines to him. Widows sent him small gifts. A tubercular Nazi party member gazed at the Fuhrer's portrait for hours to gain strength. Schoolgirls painted swastikas on their fingernails, and a group of blonde maidens vowed to heil Hitler at the point of orgasm. There was only one thing for me, explained one devout male believer, either to win with Adolf Hitler or to die for him. Finally, the British historian Piers Brendan said, The Fuhrer was able to transmit this faith not only to immediate followers, most of whom, like Goebbels, allowed themselves to be mesmerized by him. He could also project his charismatic presence onto a wider screen. At such an apocalyptic moment, the power of his personality cult was overwhelming. So, discussing the Nazi rallies. 
the Nazis really had two eras in terms of their rallies. There were the rallies before and after they seized power. Of course, there was a lot of overlap between the two periods in terms of techniques, themes, obviously. But the rallies before they seized power were very interesting because they didn't have access to state resources, and yet the rallies seemed to go even harder, if possible, than the rallies that would come later. Over the years, 1923 to 1933, the Nazi rallies were held by erecting vast tents on the outskirts of cities, and these tents could accommodate upwards of 200,000 visitors. Uh, the Nazis had meticulously planned rules and procedures for everything to do with these rallies, dealing from what to do with rainstorms all the way to how to unblock latrines. The rallies were meticulously designed to create a mood for hysteria and adoration. The American journalist William Shearer wrote in his Berlin diary, like a Roman emperor, Hitler rode into this town past solid phalanxes of wildly cheering Nazis who packed the streets. Tens of thousands of swastik flags blot out the Gothic beauties of the past, the facades of the old house, the gabled roofs, the streets hardly wider than alleys are a sea of brown and black uniforms. A mob of 10,000 hysterics who jammed the moat in front of Hitler's hotel shouted, We want our Fuhrer. They look up at him as if he were a messiah, their faces transformed into something positively inhuman. So each Nazi rally would include the same elements, each designed by the Nazis to mesmerize the attendees. They would intentionally create a thing called the Cathedral of Light, which was created by using 130 anti-aircraft searchlights placed 12 meters apart and pointed skyward to surround spectators with vertical columns of white light. There were thundering overtures, stirring martial songs, multitudes of banners, streamers, flags, and standards. There were thousands of goose-stepping marchers in highly disciplined formations, torchlight processions, massive bonfires, and private homes would often festoon themselves with huge flags and swastika banners. Against the backdrop of the stadium, its podium dominated by a giant swastika-bearing eagle, spectacles involving thousands of Nazi faithful would reach their climax with the solemn consecration of the colors. During a rendition of the Nazi hymn, the Horst Vessel Marching Song, new SA and SS banners and standards would be carried forward to reverentially touch against the Blutfahn, or the blood banner which was a tattered flag that the Nazis claimed had been soaked in the blood of those slain in Hitler's abortive Munich Pusch in 1923. So, how did Hitler become perhaps the world's greatest expert in mass politics, propaganda, and hypnosis on the level of the Wagnerian-style rally? How did he become so good at public speaking? How did he become perhaps the world's greatest public speaker? Enter a one Erich Jan Hannesen. Hannesen was born in 1889 in Proznitz, a Moravian town in what is now the Czech Republic. His birth name was Hermann Steinschneider. Proznitz was famous for having two rabbis who were known as Wunderreves, who had magical and curative powers. Steinschneider, of course, means stonecutter. 
which is reminiscent of Freemasonry. Brosnitz was a hotbed of the Sabbatian heresy, which was a sect that revered a 17th century messiah named Sabati Zevi, and the sect entertained ideas like redemption through sin, which is not unlike some of the groups that Rasputin was involved with, although of course that was in Russia. Prosnitz also had the influence of a more radical and occultic sect, the Frankists, which practiced orgiastic rituals. According to Gershom Sholem, the Sabbatians had completely subverted orthodox rabbinic culture in that area. Hermann Steinschneider was born in a jail cell. His family were circus performers. Hanussen spent his early years learning circus tricks and then started to learn the tricks of magicians and mesmerists. Much of what we know about Hanussen's life comes from his own autobiography, which is self-aggrandizing to the extreme. For instance, he attributes his parents' marriage to his telepathic powers of persuasion from the womb. Needless to say, just about everything Hanussen says about himself will have to be taken with a grain of salt. Hanussen traveled throughout Central Europe, finding work in vaudeville, and circuses learning the following tricks and skills. Glass eater, fire breather, sword swallower, lion tamer, and acrobat. He also performed with magicians, hypnotists, fortune tellers, and faith healers, and he attempted to learn all of their secrets and tricks of the trade, eventually inventing some of his own and putting together a stage act based on mind-reading and hypnotism. One of Hunnison's best tricks, his showstopper in fact, involved the following. He would get a random member of the audience, and this would actually be a random member of the audience, and Hanussen would blindfold himself. Then they would hide that object, usually a needle or a thimble, uh, anywhere in the theater. Then, blindfolded, Hannison would take the arm of the volunteer, they would walk to the hidden item, and then Hannison would show that he knew where the item was hidden. This was generally the showstopper, last uh, trick of the night. How did he do this? How did he do this trick? Basically, this was a human version of the Clever Hans trick. What's the Clever Hans trick? Clever Hans was a horse that was supposedly able to do arithmetic. Basically, a horse would stand at a chalkboard and it would be asked questions like basic addition and subtraction, and the horse supposedly was able to pick the right number. Its owner genuinely thought that uh, Clever Hans was doing math. After a formal investigation in 1907, the psychologist Oscar Funkst demonstrated that the horse was not actually performing arithmetic. Instead, the horse was watching the reactions of his owner. It turned out that the horse could actually read which number the owner wanted it to pick and would, of course, respond in kind. The horse was responding to involuntary cues in the body language of its owner, the owner being entirely unaware that he was providing such clues. Using the same concept, Funkst was able to get human subjects to sit with him at a table and focus their attention on one out of five pieces of paper fanned out in front of them. By observing the movements of their heads and eyes, Funkst was able to identify the correct sheet of paper that the uh, subject had picked 82% of the time. 
essentially Funkst figured out and reproduced the clever Hans phenomenon with people, and he reproduced the basics of Hanusen's show finale. It's certain that with proper staging and preparation and practice, Hanusen was able to perform it at even higher rates of success night after night. Now that we know a little bit about Hanusen, let's talk about some of the extracurriculars he got up to. Hanusen worked for a time at Der Blitz, a Viennese tabloid that earned much of its income by uncovering the crimes of prominent people and blackmailing them into paying large sums of money not to have the stories published. This will become important later. Also, Hanusen was drafted into the Austro-Hungarian army during World War I, and he was able to keep himself off the front lines by convincing his comrades that he was a psychic. What he actually seemed to have done was to bribe the army censors into reading his comrades' mail, and then using that information to convince them he was a psychic. Later, Hanusen got a job as a psychic detective, and did appear to have solved a bank robbery. He also claims to have caught the serial killer, the Vampire of Dusseldorf, but he probably didn't actually do that. In the 1920s, Vienna banned stage performances of hypnotism, so Hanussen became an arms dealer and spent a lot of time in North Africa and the Levant, which bolstered his claims of Eastern knowledge. In arms dealing, his role was to employ his powers of hypnosis to assist in negotiations and ensure they got the best possible deal. He was working with Hans Hauser, who is an Austrian tobacco tycoon, and they were selling military surplus equipment to the Greeks in their war against Turkey. The author Richard Spence points out that it may be significant that in the Balkan tobacco trade, Hauser almost certainly dealt with the Tobacco Company Limited, which was a British firm that also happened to provide cover in Europe for MI6 agents and ex-employees of the Secret Service. Also, for what it's worth, a French author researching Nazi occultism claimed that Honison was a spy for Britain based on remarks from ex-British agent John Goldsmith. In the following years, Honison broadened his skill set to include mind reading, clairvoyancy, palmistry, graphology, astrology, and he named himself the Wizard of the Ages. In his act as the Wizard of the Ages, he would ask members of the audience to pass handwritten questions to an assistant. Then, without looking at them, the wizard, Honison, would describe their problems and offer an answer. He claimed he was able to do this through telepathic powers. The truth is that he used coded messages and stooges to baffle and amaze his audience. One technique was to have his assistant palm a small sponge soaked in alcohol, which you could covertly wipe on the back of the envelope containing the inquiry. That momentarily rendered the paper transparent and let the assistant read the question, and then they could pass what the question was onto Hanusen through a code, like a body language code. In 1929, Hanusen was actually put on trial in the town of Litmeritz in Czechoslovakia. He was put on trial for fraud and larceny. During the trial, Hanusen was charged with, with receiving large amounts of money in exchange for giving them advice, and that frequently the advice that he gave them would backfire and 
cost them more money. Other villagers, however, did say that his powers and advice helped them. The judge decided that the best way to make a judgment would be to put Hannison to the test to see if he was a real or a fake psychic. Hannison, of course, had to agree because his career depended on it, and of course he was a huge showman. So the court devised a series of tests. The first test was to find a hidden object, which was something he had done for years, so naturally he passed that with flying colors. Next, he had to examine the samples of handwriting and reveal details about the authors. His analyses were proven correct. Finally, he was given a series of dates, and he correctly identified what those dates were, which was the birth date of a court employee and the date of a serious car accident. The last date he was asked about just blew everyone away. He was asked what happened on the 26th of February in 1927 at the Carolina University in Prague. Dramatically, Honison said, I see a room, glass, laboratory, an explosion. And then he said, but the year is wrong. It happened in 1926, not 1927. One onlooker said, the court was amazed, unbelievable. This man must be in league with the devil. Even today, I can't explain it myself because I was convinced, as was the court, that this test he could not fake. The judge said, there is no question Hannison solved the experiments and there is no way he could have faked the results. The judge said, his metaphysical abilities are beyond doubt. Realistically, Hannison probably used his sharpened abilities as a stage magician paired with a bribe or two, as we know he did in World War I when he read his comrade's mail. In 1930, Hannison moved to Berlin, where he began to get top billing at La Scala, Berlin's best-known vaudeville theater. While there, he would perform for the likes of Marlene Dietrich, Peter Lorre, Fritz Lang, Sigmund Freud, and Hermann Göring. In 1939, Honnison started a small publishing empire, editing and publishing several newspapers and magazines like Die Andre Welt, uh, which, was, which translates to The Other World, which would frequently publish magical formulas, astrological predictions, magnetic healing, techniques to pick up women, ghost stories, a seance of the month, and illustrated features on topics such as the following. A ten-year-old prostitute, the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, and a telepathic dog. It sounds like he was literally publishing Program to Kill material. Here's a quote from one of his many books. This book was called A Primer for Telepathy. The illusion of the supernatural must surround the artist in the eyes of his audience, which will be a thousand times more manageable when it has become a group of believers. With success comes self-confidence, and with self-confidence the power of persuasion itself. I think that's fundamentally correct, although you can see how essentially con man and actual psychic, it seems like it kind of goes hand in hand. Honison also wrote practical guides about palmistry, astrology, graphology, mind reading, and my personal favorite, how to hypnotize your lover into ecstasy. Honison began to accumulate wealth and spent a lot of time cultivating friendships with anyone with influence or power. He quickly got in with Hans Heinz Evers, 
who was an author of horror stories and a fervent Nazi. Avers is a very interesting guy. He might even be worth his own episode one day. Because Avers was definitely involved in spying with Aleister Crowley. More on that in a second. Honnison endeared himself to the Nazis by writing a biography of Horst Wessel, who was the SA troop leader who wrote the Horst Wessel lead, which became the Nazi anthem, and who became a martyr to the Nazi cause. Through Evers, Honnison also met other high-ranking members of the SA, like Count Wolf Heinrich Graf von Heldorf, who was chief of the Berlin stormtroopers at the time. Heldorf came from a wealthy aristocratic Prussian family. The book that I'm looking at describes him as tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, a sadist, a habitual gambler, and connoisseur of the occult. Heldorf would run protection rackets. As Nazi terror caused wealthy Jews to flee Germany, Heldorf developed the practice of confiscating passports from wealthy Jews then selling those passports back to them for hundreds of thousands of marks. He became a regular guest of the parties that Honnison was increasingly hosting on his yacht, the Ursel IV. His yacht, the Ursel IV, was nicknamed the Seven Deadly Sins because his guests could indulge their every wish and satisfy any sexual desire. They could drink unlimited quantities of champagne, take exotic drugs, and enjoy the company of willing young girls or boys. What the partygoers did not know was that Honnison was in fact trying to blackmail them. In a repeat of blackmail scams he had learned when working for De Blitz, Honnison had installed hidden cameras and concealed microphones aboard the 60-foot yacht. The politicians, aristocrats, movie stars, and industrialists would be caught on film in compromising situations, and would then be offered the choice of paying handsomely to keep their indiscretion secret or see them splashed all over Honnison's different magazines. Now, tell me, does this remind you of anything? It has been asserted that Honnison was organizing ritual orgies based on sex magic, as had been practiced in India by left way tantrics. Among the Ursel IV's crew was a 14-year-old boy named Kabir, who would help with the musical entertainment, he also functioned as a towel boy. There's a story that a female guest, after having swam naked, complained that Kabir was staring at her body too closely when he handed her a towel. Eric dragged Kabir to a cabin where he ordered him stripped and tied to a table. As the guests watched in shocked silence, Heldorf pulled out a riding crop and began to beat the boy. He whipped Kabir so ferociously that Kabir passed out from pain. The other guests pleaded for him to stop, and Heldorf flung down his crop and screamed at them, I'm a sadist, I admit it. We are all sadists. In the essay, one must learn to be desensitized to petty human compassion. After the 1932 elections, the Nazi party was on the verge of bankruptcy because the elections were so costly. And of course, inflation was still a problem in Germany. Honnison attempted to ingratiate himself to the Nazis by joining the Nazi party and loaning its senior officers large sums of money. In Count Heldorf's case, Honnison paid Heldorf's gambling debts and even let him drive his Bugatti to the bank to settle his overdraft. Now, we already talked about Honnison's probable involvement with the British-owned tobacco company Limited, 
which was a front for MI6. It is not clear whether Honison stayed in contact with the British or any other intelligence agencies. Another probable intelligence agency he might have worked with would be the Viennese. However, Alistair Crowley was working in Berlin at the same time, and he was close friends with Hans Evers, the horror author. Through Evers, Honison and Crowley met a number of times. It has been proven that Alistair Crowley had links with British intelligence dating back to before World War I, and it is probable that Crowley was in Berlin on spy business at this time. It has been asserted but not proven that Crowley was in Berlin to recruit Honison, uh, which becomes more and more credible the closer Honison got to the upper echelons of Nazi leadership. There's a quote here from Richard Spence. Whatever his occult abilities, Honison was a clever, unscrupulous, and venal character who insinuated himself into the confidence of important people in Germany and elsewhere. He clearly had a talent, one way or another, for obtaining secret information. His currency as an informant only increased when he gained access to Hitler. All of this made the phony Dane an asset that any intelligence agency would have been anxious to exploit. On the 13th of May in 1932, after a sold-out performance at La Scala, Honnison hosted a dinner party where, in attendance, the mother of a racing driver was worried about her son's upcoming race which was the Avis Automobile Race, uh, which raced at one of the oldest racetracks in the world. This racetrack has a lovely thing called the Wall of Death, because there's no retaining barrier, so cars that miss the turns would easily fly off of it. And of course, racing in these old days was a bloody affair, so the mother was worried about her son. Honison was challenged to predict the winner. After some persuasion, he wrote down two names on a piece of paper, folded it into an envelope, and handed it to the barman with instructions that it shouldn't be opened until after the race. The two names that Honison wrote down included the winner of the race and the upcoming victim, who he predicted would die in the upcoming race. Berlin journalists, most of whom were skeptics of Honison, dismissed the prophecy. The following day, however, when the envelope was opened, it was found that Honison correctly predicted both the winner and the driver who had died. It was also reported that Honison tried without success to persuade the victim not to take part in the race. From then on, the press and the public almost went into a frenzy hanging on his predictions. Now, it's not clear when Honison met Hitler. One American journalist says it was in 1930, but it is certain that they did meet by 1932. Following the racetrack predictions, Hitler sent a note to Honnison asking if they could meet. It was the start of a professional relationship between the two men, during which the master of stagecraft would impart decades of experience in winning over an audience. Honnison also used his skills as a hypnotist to build Hitler's self-confidence when speaking to a mass audience and to show him how to use hypnosis himself to literally entrance spectators. After a successful first meeting, Hitler asked the psychic to help him improve his stagecraft when speaking to tens of thousands at his growing rallies. Honnison instructed Hitler in auto-suggestion, acting, and stage presence. To captivate his audiences, Honnison suggested that speeches be delivered at night when listeners' psychological resistance ebbed low. He paid special attention to gestures, inflection, days, timing, and extrasensory attunement. 
Sets also played a role in mass hypnosis, including the colorful banners, music, processions, and lighting, all of these things heightening the dramatic spectacles. Now, we know that Hitler was also seeking out and receiving lessons from other sources, like, for example, Hitler would have his personal photographer, Heinrich Hoffmann, take pictures of him rehearsing the gestures he would use in his speeches. Then Hitler would spend hours studying them to assess their visual impact and learn how to best present himself before the cameras. Honnison emphasized the importance of using both hands when making gestures since it increases the intensity of the statement. Hitler, of course, practiced and fully integrated these techniques. Among the hypnotic techniques that Honnison taught were ways to mesmerize the audience through the power of facial expression, eye contact, and voice tone. He showed Hitler ways of using content, voice tone, expression, and eye movement to increase his already considerable attraction to his followers. In addition, Honnison used hypnosis to further strengthen Hitler's already powerful belief in his own divine destiny, teaching Hitler self-hypnosis techniques so that he could quickly and easily place himself in a trance. Finally, Honnison pandered to Hitler's superstitious streak by supplying him with positive astrological predictions. Now, we know all of this from various sources, but one of them comes from a OSS report uh, written in 1943. The OSS report came from a dissident Nazi, Otto Strasser, who was a former admirer of Honnison, who reported, quote, During the 1920s, Hitler took regular lessons in speaking and in mass psychology from a man named Hammerson, who is also a practicing astrologer and fortune teller. And it is not clear that he was taking these lessons in the early 1920s. But the relationship and the facts of the matter are confirmed. Finally, Honnison supposedly foretold the future for Hitler, predicting that Hitler would become chancellor within a year. On the 23rd of March in 1932, the newspaper, the Berliner Wochenschau, gave front-page prominence to Honnison's prophecy that Hitler would become appointed chancellor in one year's time, and yet again, Honnison's prophecy was correct. Now it's time for the good stuff. We're talking about the Palace of the Occult. On the 26th of February in 1932, as the Weimar Republic entered its final days, and Hitler was on the verge of seizing absolute power in Germany, Honnison held an opening night gala of his newly crafted Palace of the Occult. It took two months of work to convert an apartment into what one writer described as a supernatural appendage to Versailles, an exquisite pagan temple supplemented with the latest 1930s technologies. Honnison's VIP guest list included almost everyone of social and political importance in Berlin. Louis Ferdinand, the Prince of Prussia, Prince Heinrich von Rius, various white Russians, including one who claimed to be Anastasia Romanov. There were writers like Kurt Ries, Hans Heinz Ivers, journalists and editors of the major newspapers, ambassadors, artists, movie stars, high-ranking SA officers like Count von Helldorf, Karl Ernst, and Wilhelm Ost. On entering the candlelit foyer, 
Guests were greeted by blue-eyed, blonde-haired priestesses, scantily dressed in thin white and pale green tunics. Indian prayer stools lined the walls of an entrance hall dominated by a giant bronze statue of Hanasen, dressed in the toga of a Caesar, with the left arm raised in a Nazi gesture of victory. They entered the Hall of Silence with high-domed ceiling decorated with stars and mystical Egyptian and Babylonian astrological signs. Spotlights lit up walls painted gray and purple, with four large Buddhas in each corner. At precisely ten o'clock, a green mist filled the room and an organ began to play Wagner. The lights dimmed and went out, leaving only a brilliant spotlight shining down on the center of the floor. Honison was not in sight. Slowly the floor moved and a chasm appeared. Two panels moved back and a throne rose majestically up 15 feet in the air. On an ebony black throne was Honison, clothed in a scarlet robe. He was holding a large crystal ball with colored lights flickering through it and there was a half-dazed expression in his eyes. He began to speak, his rich voice seeming to come from the walls. He predicted a blood purge that was to come later, and of a war with England, Russia, and America. Following this dramatic entry, Honison and ten of his most important guests, including Count Heldorf, retired to the Room of Glass. In this inner sanctum, reserved for private psychic readings, People were seated around a circular table and placed both hands, palms downward, fingers splayed against the frosted glass surface. Beneath it was a wheel decorated with occult symbols, which slowly revolved. Honison, seated on a swivel chair in the center of the table, waited until the wheel stopped, then foretold each guest's fortune based on the mystical signs beneath their hands. After the readings, he asked for a volunteer for a mind reading. He picked a young actress, Maria Powdler, who recalls this incident in her autobiography. He escorted her to a chair facing the other guests and offered her a glass of champagne. Then he waved his hands, gazed into her eyes, stroked her face, then she felt herself float away. From what seemed like a great distance, she heard Honison asking in a soft and persuasive voice whether she could see anything. She said she could see red circles. He asked if they were coming from a big house. Basically, Honison predicted the Reichstag fire with this young actress. The following day, the prediction appeared in De Honison Zeitung, one of Honison's publications. The article read that a great provocation would shortly occur. Three days later, Germany's parliament building, the Reichstag, was set ablaze. On the 27th of February, 1933, the Reichstag building was set on fire by Marinus van der Lubbe, a Dutch communist who was arrested, and the fire was attributed to him and communist agitators. The court later ruled that van der Lubbe had acted alone, as he himself claimed. The day after, the Reichstag fire decree was passed, which was a crucial step in establishing one-party Nazi state rule in Germany. Many historians suspect that the arson had been planned and ordered by the Nazis as a false flag operation. And, for what it's worth, Germany posthumously pardoned van der Lubbe in 2008. I am not going to be presumptuous enough to argue that I know enough to say yes, it was definitely a false flag attack. 
Now, obviously, the Reichstag fire decree had already been written, which isn't, which, you know, is suspicious. And the Nazis used false flag attacks later, like with the Gleiwitz incident, which they used to justify invading Poland. So that said, I think it is pretty much well within the realm of possibility that this was a false flag. What I do know, however, is that during the police investigation, the police did not find any direct evidence against van der Lubbe, and that Eric Jan Honnesen came up several times in their investigation. For one thing, Honnesen, of course, literally predicted the Reichstag fire three days in advance, but apart from that, there's a quote here, Throughout his trial, the young Dutchman's behavior and manner were anything but those of a skilled and dedicated arsonist. He came across as lethargic, rambling, empty-headed, and almost robotic. His voice was so low as to be barely audible, his answers monosyllabic, his explanations banal, and his posture was one of abject resignation. Some Berliners wondered whether Hanussen had hypnotized van der Lubbe. Does this not sound like Sirhan Sirhan? These suspicions received support in 1934 from a report by a former SS officer, Walter Korodi, who had been close to the plot. Korodi defected and fled to Switzerland. He claimed that Count von Heldorf had brought van der Lubbe, who was a vagrant, to see Hanussen. He claims the master hypnotist put van der Lubbe in a trance, explained to him how to break into the Reichstag, provided a map, and showed him how to start the fires, and then used post-hypnotic suggestion to enable Heldorf to return van der Lubbe to his hypnotic trance whenever it would become necessary. Separate from these claims, Hanussen did actually stay in court the entire trial, ready to intervene if van der Lubbe deviated from the script. Three decades later, this claim was supported by the widow of the trial judge, Wilhelm Bunger, who confirmed that while Hannesen's name came up frequently in pre-trial statements, all mention of his name was expunged from the trial documents. Many people believe that the Dutchman van der Lubbe was a scapegoat, including mainstream historians. Some claim that the true fire setters were a group of SA men led by Karl Ernst, who entered the parliament building through an underground tunnel. One theory says that they sprayed the carpets, curtains, and upholstery with a chemical that spontaneously ignites after a suitable delay, and that van der Lubbe was a patsy. What we do know is that within a month, Hanussen would be dead. Until now, I don't think I stated directly that Eric Jan Hanussen was Jewish. Although he claimed to be a Danish aristocrat, hence his name, Eric Jan Hanussen, he was in fact a Moravian-born Jew, one who got in way over his head with the Nazi party. On the 7th of April, 1933, a farm worker found a corpse in a shallow grave in the countryside. The corpse had been shot three times at point-blank range. They easily identified the corpse as Eric Jan Hanussen through his jacket, which had a tailor mark, including his name. Now, in the last days of his life, Hanussen attempted to ingratiate himself to the Nazis by formally joining the Nazi party and by getting baptized Catholic. At the same time, he was making secret arrangements 
to transfer his business and wealth to Vienna. His daughter said that he knew he was living on borrowed time. Honnison's personal assistant was asked to identify his body. She said that his corpse bore an expression of absolute horror. In case you're wondering, there was no formal police investigation into his murder on direct orders from Goebbels. So, why was he killed? I will rank the theories in ascending order of likelihood. First, there's the possibility that he was murdered uh, because they made him as a spy for the British or maybe the Austrians or some secret service. I don't find that one very credible. I don't find that one very credible because if you make a spy, you can always feed them disinformation or flip them, make them into a double agent. I don't think that alone is a good reason. Next, perhaps the most obvious one, uh, you can easily point out that, of course, they could have killed him because he was a Jew. That doesn't really explain things, though, because as of 1933, right after seizing power, the Nazis were not yet in the practice of taking Jews, much less prominent Jews, into the forest and shooting them point blank. Another reason why he might have been murdered was that many high-ranking Nazis owed him large sums of money. Locked away in Honnison's safe were promissory IOUs amounting to many thousands of marks from Count von Heldorf, Karl Ernst, Wilhelm Ost, and even the head of the SA, Ernst Röhm, owed him money. In my opinion, this is more likely to have been an additional motivation rather than the primary motivation for killing him. Next, Honnison, of course, had been blackmailing rich and powerful members of society, including Nazis, who had partied on his yacht. I find this reason somewhat more compelling, but his blackmail operation, of course, was not news to the Nazis. In fact, at times they were the muscle for it. So I'm not necessarily sure this is going to be the triggering reason uh, that they would have to murder him. Next, it is possible that they could have murdered him for having loose lips regarding his lessons to Hitler, his business dealings with the Nazis, and his connection to the Reichstag fire. I think this is possible, but again, I think this is one of the contributing factors, like the money he owed them. I don't think it's necessarily the main factor. Now, as we discussed, there's a good chance that Honnison was involved in the Reichstag fire plot, ranging from, at a minimum, just knowing how van der Lubbe got an unfair trial, all the way to the possibility that Honnison hypnotized van der Lubbe into either committing the arson or at least accepting his role as Patsy. That, paired with all the other factors, would be pretty damning. But for my money, the most convincing reason why Honnison might have been killed was because of the Berliner Tageblatt incident. Essentially, the Berliner Tageblatt and other newspapers uh, and a publishing house were all owned by the Moss family, a family of rich Jews who had only just fled Germany leaving their newspaper and publishing empire to be administered by their longtime employee, Carl Vetter. The Moss family wanted to sell their newspapers and publishing empire. The Nazis, of course, wanted to take over and Aryanize it. So the SA appointed Wilhelm Ost to buy the company. Buy. I'm doing air quotes because we are talking about a thin veneer of legality over government expropriations and 
basically outright theft. Ost was instructed to offer 2 million marks for the entire business. Vetter didn't know if he should accept the offer or ask for more, so he consulted an old friend, Eric Jan Hannesen. Here was the plan. Vetter and Hannesen hatched a plan to use Hannesen's IOUs from senior SA officers, including Count von Heldorf, and they could blackmail Heldorf into authorizing to triple the Nazi offer. They threatened to inform Hitler of the debts and extort Count Heldorf into authorizing the payment of 6 million marks rather than 2 million. The two men, Vedder and Hanusen, could each walk away with a cool 2 million each and then still send the initial offer of 2 million to the Moss family. It seemed like a pretty good plan. However, Carl Vetter chickened out and decided that trying to blackmail an SA commander seemed like a bad idea. So instead, he went to Count Heldorf and told him of Hannesen's scheme. Heldorf reached out to Carl Ernst, who was at that point the current head of the Berlin SA, and told him to kill Eric Jan Hannesen. Hannesen was picked up at his regular bar before one of his nightly performances at La Scala. He was picked up by Wilhelm Ost and some SA men. Hannesen didn't realize what he was picked up for or the gravity of the matter. Hannesen was taken to an SA office and beaten in order to find the location of the IOUs. They drove him back to his apartment where Hannesen handed the IOUs to the men. SA men left him at that point. Hannesen knew he didn't have much time. An illusionist to the end, Hannesen sat down and wrote out a farewell letter in invisible ink. He wrote, Yesterday they beat me till I was half dead, but half isn't enough for them. I know that without going into a trance. I wasn't as shrewd as I thought, nor as stupid as you believed, but stupid enough. I always thought that business about Jews was just an election trick for the Nazis. It wasn't. Read carefully what the prophet Daniel has said on the subject in chapters 11 and 12. Count the days, but only after they had destroyed a hundred temples in a single day. That's the time to start counting. The first date you get will mark the fall of the man who wants to become the ruler of the world by force. And the second date will mark the day on which will occur the triumphal entry of the victors. This is my farewell to you. On the same sheet, he wrote the recipient's name in ordinary ink, making most of the page look blank. The essay men ignored the letter when they returned to drag him off to his death. It is believed that he was shot execution style in the forest. After his death, the New York Times described Hannison as an advisor to royalty. He was buried in a pauper's grave. Carl Ernst, the boyfriend of Ernst Röhm, who was the SA commander who carried out Hannesen's murder, was himself gunned down as part of the shakeup following the Rome purge, also known as the Night of the Long Knives. Count Heldorf, who ordered Hannesen's murder, was implicated in the July 20th, 1944 plot to kill Hitler, and was slowly garroted to death with piano wire. Now, I don't have the ability to judge Eric Jan Hannesen as a person. The man was very mysterious. Obviously, he was half fraudulent criminal and half psychic. 
He irresponsibly aided the Nazis, but he was also their victim. He was probably a spy, although certainly more in the vein of the self-serving variety. His entire life was in the shadows, but also the spotlight. The weird liminalities between respectable society and the circus. Nobody can realistically know enough about someone like that to know all of his actions or what was in his heart. Hopefully he's at peace. And in terms of Hitler, what I propose is pretty simple. Hitler learned more magicians' tricks to manipulate and hypnotize Germany than is currently understood. These are indisputable historical facts, yet you don't hear people talk about Hitler that way. Various religious and cult leaders have used these tricks before and after Hitler in order to gain power and influence. It behooves us to know about them. Now, in terms of sources, I relied heavily on David Lewis's book, Triumph of the Will, How Two Men Hypnotized Hitler and Changed the World, as well as some websites, which I used mainly to cross-check the information from the Lewis book. But especially helpful and interesting was Richard Spence's article for New Dawn, entitled Hitler's Jewish Psychic. As always, thank you for listening. It touches my heart to know you're out there listening. Uh, If you enjoy it, just tell people. Let people know that it's out there. And I need to be on my way. I'm on my way to Munich, where I'm going to visit the courtyard of the Louis Gold High School. Thank you for listening, and God bless.